We come now to the preaching of the Word, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them and turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, we'll be looking at the first 14 verses this morning, and you'll find this printed before you in your order of service. Genesis 17, beginning in the first verse, give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of Canaan of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep with them between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the foreskins of your flesh, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God abides forever to the praise of his glorious name. Let us pray. We thank you, O Lord our God, that you are the sword of God who infinite in power and majesty, yet full of mercy towards sinners like us, makes everlasting covenants for us and for our salvation and for the salvation of those who come after us. And we pray, O oh Father, that we might be richly blessed and called to greater communion with you as we study this word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Names communicate important things. Sometimes family history, sometimes the heroes of the parents are reasons why they select particular names for their children. Then there are some names that we pick up through our lives that sometimes are more important to us even than the names we were born with. I have a friend of mine who's a Presbyterian minister and his wife's name is Peaches. Now I'm pretty sure that was not on her birth certificate. But I don't know of anybody, and I have never heard her husband call her anything other than Peaches. 
Sometimes names are given to us out of utility. When I was at Erskine College, I had a group of friends, and in that group of friends, we had at any given time between three and five uh, guys who all had the first name Brandon. And so everybody got called by their last name, Oberly, Frady, just so we could know who we were talking to. In some cases, names are a bit ironic. Uh, one of my favorite places to get a steak on the east side of Greenville, the, uh, the chef, the uh, man who's uh, the head of the kitchen, he's easily over 300 or 350 pounds, and he is called, most appropriately, tiny. So sometimes names communicate things to and for us. Now, as we look at our text this morning, Abraham's name was probably a bit of a sore point for him. His name, Abram, that he was given from birth, meant a father of a great many of descendants. But here he is, as we find him at age 99, he and his wife have had no children. And every time he heard his name, it was likely a reminder to him and his wife that he was supposed to be the father of many, yet he has no sons. Today in our text, God will change his name, highlighting even more that God is going to give him a superabundance of descendants. And this comes in the context of God further establishing the gracious covenant that he makes with Abraham and giving him the sign of that covenant, namely circumcision. And so today as we look at how this text moves forward the covenant history and the promises that God makes to Abraham, we're going to look at two brief things this morning. First, we're going to look at the promises of the covenant. And what is it that God promises to Abraham and why he changes Abram's name to Abraham? And second, we'll look at the sign of the covenant and what did it mean to be circumcised in this text. So as we begin looking at the promises of God to Abraham, we note that more time has passed in between the previous text and the one that we come to today. Look with me at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So here more time has passed since Abraham and his wife Sarai tried to take things into their own hands and it did not go well for them. Here at age 99, the Lord appears to him and as God is preparing to make even greater promises to him, God reveals himself through a new name. I am God Almighty, or El Shaddai in the Hebrew. And God is going to promise this 99-year-old man that he is going to make him one of the most fruitful fathers in the history of the world. And so he highlights his divine power. Now, as we see in a moment, this text is full of the graciousness of God and what God is going to do for Abraham. But notice at the beginning that God's gracious covenant requires thankful obedience from us. Look with me again at verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Walking is something that is not passive. It's not passive in our life, and it's not passive when it's used in the Scripture to describe a pattern of life. To walk before the Lord means to think before him in a particular way, to speak before him in a particular way, and to live and act in a particular way according to his words, as we see this word used in the Psalms. 
And God emphasizes to him that his walk before the Lord is to be striving for holiness. Walk before me, God says, and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So for Abraham, while God is going to do for him what he could not do for himself, God emphasizes that in this gracious relationship established by God, God has expectations for Abraham, and Abraham is to strive for holiness. And that same thing is true for you and for me today. While we emphasize that God alone saves us and that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the Christian life is one where the grace of God that has been given to us then produces change in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is built into the very concept of repentance. As Christ tells us to have faith and to repent of our sins, what is it to repent? The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us a beautiful definition when it says, repentance unto life is a saving grace. In other words, it's something that God gives to you that you don't generate yourself. But this saving grace is whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercies of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred for his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. So in the command that Christ gives to us to freely receive the gift given to us contained in that concept of repentance is that we are turning away from the world, the flesh, and the devil with hatred for that which God hates, and we are turning towards God with an endeavor after new obedience. That means we have aspirations. That means we aim towards new obedience. It doesn't say, and the Bible does not say, that in order to repent you have to perfectly become obedient. Otherwise, we would all be in deep trouble because that would never happen. Perfection is not something we can attain in this life, and Abraham is an example. As we've seen, he's had some high points and he's had some low points. But the Christian life is one where though we know we will not be holy, we know we have been declared righteous by Christ. We know we've been given the resurrection power by union with him and that the Holy Spirit enables us to purpose after him for obedience. And just as God said to Abraham in this gracious covenant, walk before me and be blameless. So in the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews says, there is a holiness without which we will not see the Lord and that we are to strive after Jesus Christ. And in this context, then, God changes Abraham's name. Look with me at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, Abram's original name meant the father of many. But when it's changed to Abraham, it's intensified to mean he is the father of a multitude. And God goes on to explain, I'm not just going to give you many children, I'm going to give you descendants who will come after you that you will never meet. Whole generations of people will come from your body, and there will be nations and kings. 
Moreover, I will give to them the land of your sojournings, because so great are going to be those who come after you that they're going to need a large piece of land. A couple of acres here on the nice side of a mountain is not going to cut it. You're going to have a huge swath of descendants that will come by my supernatural power. And God changes his name, yet he still does not have a single baby that he has held in his arms. But God says, you are no longer Abram. You are now Abraham because I am going to do this for you. And the text emphasizes that what God is going to do in the life of Abraham is the unilateral action of God. That it is God who is going to accomplish these covenant promises in the life of Abraham. Look and count the number of times that the phrase, I will, appears in the text, starting at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be called, or Abram, your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Uh, your offspring to the land, uh, excuse me, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. The text emphasizes the gracious and unilateral action of God. Abraham, all of these things are going to be true in your life. And I, the Lord God, the Almighty, I'm going to do this for you. And this is a theme we see in God's dealing with Abraham in Genesis, and it is as true for us as it was true for him. We cannot justify ourselves. That is, we can't make ourselves legally righteous. We can't sanctify ourselves. We can't make ourselves holy unless God does it in us. We cannot make ourselves sons of God. That can only be declared for us in Jesus Christ. And that greatest of all blessings, that even though the frailties of this life beset themselves in our bodies, and even though our souls are separated from our bodies at death, at that last day we will be raised anew with resurrection bodies. We cannot do that. These things can only be true in our life if God and Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, does them for us. Just as Abraham would say, I have done none of these things, it is God who has done them in us. So we in the New Testament say, we are but the byproducts of God's grace. He has saved us, redeemed us, and loved us, and we owe it all to God, not to ourselves. And that's the essence of the covenant for Abraham, and it is the essence of the covenant for us. Now notice in particular, too, that as God promises to uh, do these wonderful things for Abraham, there is a central promise that God makes. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Theologians rightly note that that is the center, the very heart of God's promise to Abraham, and it's actually the center of the gospel. Though you are sinful and your sins separate you from God, God has promised that he will nonetheless, through his own Son, become a God to you. You will be his people, and he will be a God to your children 
after you. And this is all on the terms of the gracious working of God. But what this means, then, is that in this gracious covenant, the children of believers are included. He emphasizes this in verse 8, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. Now, God is saying he's going to include the children of Abraham in this covenant, and this is all the more striking considering none of them exist. None of them are alive. Not even the first one of these children have been born, but God is saying, my covenant is going to so work that I will include your children and descendants in this covenant. Here we see that children are included in the covenant, and we see that God works through families. Picking up the theme that we've seen in Genesis 12, where God says through Abraham, he's going to bless all the families of the world. This is true in the Abrahamic covenant, and it's true in the New Testament. As Peter proclaims the promises of the gospel, it's for those of you who are near, those of you who are far off, and for your children also, picking up this kind of language. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that the children of believers are holy, that is, they are set aside for the purposes of God. This raises questions for us in how we view our own children. If you have a child who is born to at least one believing parent, how do you think about that child? How do you think about your children and your grandchildren? Are they merely little, as some of the Puritan tradition would put it, vipers in diapers? <laughs> I'm not saying they'll never behave that way. I'm saying, who are they? Do they belong to the world, or do they belong to the church? The uniform pattern of Scripture is that while they're not automatically saved, while they have to grow up and accept the gospel for themselves, they are born into God's covenant community, and they are born into the church. And so we don't raise them as little heathens. We raise them as Christian children, raising them in the fear and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and that they need to take hold of the promises that God gives to them in their baptism and in the covenant community. I think this should contextualize the way we pray for our children. We should not just pray for them as we would for a person we meet off the streets who's an unbeliever, but rather we should be praying, Lord, you've promised to me that you'd be a God to me and to my children after me. And I pray that these covenant blessings will be true not only in my own life, but in the lives of each and every one of my children that you have blessed me with. We know according to Romans 9 that the mysterious working of God's election is according to his own grace. It's not according to some mechanistic principle. We'll see even in the life of Abraham that there are some of his physical descendants who reject the covenant for themselves. But God gives us this promise, and it's on this promise that we should rest. And as we see this, we should be reminded that the priority in our life is the grace of God. It's not what we've done. Oh, yes, you have to have faith. Yes, you have to have repentance. Yes, you should strive for holiness. But the only reason you have faith, the Apostle Paul teaches us in Ephesians 2, is because God gave it to you as a gift. The only reason you have repentance is because the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes, and as you see in Ezekiel, has given you a new heart instead of a heart of stone. The only reason you're able to do anything that is good and pleasing is because the Holy Spirit empowers you to do it. 
And so as we see God graciously saying to Abraham, it's not what you will accomplish, Abraham, but it's what I will do through you. So the whole life of the Christian is one of conscious dependence upon God and God alone. Now we see to highlight this and to communicate this even more clearly, God now gives something new to Abraham, not just a new name, but a new aspect to the covenant. Most of these promises that God has reiterated, he's already told to Abraham, but there's something new in verse 9 to 14, the sign of the covenant that God provides. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the foreskins of your flesh, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born into your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Here Moses identifies circumcision as a sign of the covenant. What is a sign. Well, a sign is a picture, and it was common in the time of Abraham and in our day for when you make a most solemn vow and covenant that there is some physical token or sign of that vow that you have made. If you're married here, odds are on your left hand on your ring finger, you have a sign of the covenant that you gave to your wife or to your husband on the day when you made that covenant of marriage. It is actually your finger, your ring that you have placed on your spouse's finger. You gave it to them as a sign that you are pledging to love them until death do you part through all the good times and all the bad. Here God says, Abraham, I'm giving you a sign of this covenant that I'm making with you and that I'm reiterating today. And as you look in the scriptures, these signs that accompany, uh, that accompany the covenants tend to do three things. First, they're a picture. And we'll talk in a moment about what circumcision meant and why it was a picture of God's covenant with Abraham. Second, it was a seal. Seals are ways in the ancient world where through wax and a special seal, you would impress upon the paper a token showing that this is not a forged signature, but it comes from the king or from the nobleman who is sending you a document. Back then, they didn't have encrypted peer-to-peer -peer email services, and so you had to have some way of verifying that this document actually came from you. A sacrament, a sign, is God's seal authenticating that these promises are directly from his hand. And finally, this sign, as we'll see in the Lord's Supper in a moment, is a sacrament. It's a mysterious way that by faith God gives grace to us. And as God was promising his grace to Abraham, so he's giving him a physical sign to remind him that this is an everlasting covenant. And notice the relationship between the sign and the covenant. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. The covenant already existed. God made the covenant with Abraham back in chapter 15 without the sign being present. But there's such a deep connection between the thing signified and the picture or the sign of it 
that Scripture will sometimes use one to speak of the other, and the same is true for baptism in the New Testament. Now, what is the meaning of circumcision? Well, as you look at circumcision here and in the Old Testament, there are two themes that come up, holiness and the promised Messiah. Circumcision, like today, is not something exclusive in the ancient world to the Hebrew people. Uh, ancient Egyptians practice circumcision today. There are many people who are not Jewish or who are not Christian that receive circumcision. And it was primarily an act of hygiene. And God used that as a sign to be symbolic of the fact that God's covenant being given to them requires that as he said to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. The act of circumcision was to be a reminder to every male head of household that God is calling on you to cut away all evil and all wickedness and to devote yourself wholly to the Lord. But the second thing that you see and why this sign in particular was chosen as an everlasting symbol was that it was close to the idea of the seed concept that we saw in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would be the one who would come and crush the serpent and would liberate God's people. And so God gave this particular sign to remind them that it is through the generations of Abraham that the Messiah will come. But we give some other things here in the text. We're told, for instance, that it is on the eighth day that you shall be circumcised. Why not the seventh? Why not the sixteenth? Why not the twentieth? The eighth day here is emphasized. Now, on the one hand, you could say this is a, a practical thing. Uh, if you know anything about circumcision, it's far better to have that on the eighth day than, say, when you're 13. Just practically speaking, that's a lot better for all parties involved. Some theorize that it's medical. In fact, there are some evidence that suggests that uh, blood clotting is very high on the eighth day, and perhaps that's why God put it there. I think that's incidental. The fact is, though, when you look through Scripture, there is something special about the eighth day. In the book of Leviticus and at various times, God highlights the eighth day as days on which certain sacrifices and certain things occur. And in particular, it is the day that Christ was raised from the dead. He was in the tomb through the Sabbath, and then he was raised on Sunday, which because they counted their days according to the old Sabbath system, Sunday would have been the eighth day. St. Augustine says this, Christ suffered voluntarily, and so he could choose his own time for suffering and for the resurrection. He brought it about that his body rested from all its works on the Sabbath day in the tomb, and his resurrection was on the third day, which we call the Lord's Day, the day after the Sabbath. And therefore the eighth day proved the circumcision of the eighth day to be prophetical of him. In other words, circumcision was likely put on the eighth day to say the cutting away of sin from you is something that will happen ultimately on that eighth day as Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and brings you the ability to be completely separated from your sin. And notice that this is not an ethnic thing. There are some who think circumcision was a sign of being a biological descendant of Abraham or belonging to the nation of Israel. But the nation didn't exist yet. And as of, there are no descendants of Abraham. But it said, anyone who is born of your body or anyone who is even bought with your money and brought under your covenantal leadership in your household, regardless of where they're born, 
The males have to be circumcised, and this is my covenant with you. That's why when the people of Israel came up out of Egypt, there were all sorts of other slaves and people who wanted to come along with Israel, and they were included in the people of God because the people of God has never been an ethnic thing. It's been a thing by faith. And so this is a sign of salvation by faith and relationship with God. And finally, it has very severe consequences if you neglect it. The final verse, verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God was very serious that this covenant sign is so important that if you neglect it and you say, oh, I don't want anything to do with that, you were to then be cast out of Israel. There's a story as Moses is um, coming. He has been in the wilderness. He's been called by God to come back and to be the deliverer of his people. But on the way, there's this, to us, unusual text where God comes to meet uh, Moses, but he doesn't come to meet him as a friend. He comes to kill him. Why? Because he has not circumcised his two sons. And his wife has to perform an emergency circumcision in order to turn away the wrath of God from Moses. But so serious was God about this that he said, you shall not neglect this, and it will carry the severe penalty of being cast out from my people. The theme here is that if you reject my covenant, you will feel the rejection of God. And I think this has something to teach us. Just being born into the household of Abraham was not enough. You had to own the covenant. You had to take it for yourself. And so if you rejected it for you and your family, being a descendant of Abraham or being bought into his house was not good enough. You had to take the faith for yourself. The same is true for us today. Just being born into a Christian family, while it is a beautiful thing, is not good enough in and of itself. In order to be saved, you must by faith lay hold of the promises of God for yourself. And if you're here this morning and you have never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, you've never surrendered to him, you've never repented of your sins and turned to him in faith, it doesn't matter if you attend church. It doesn't matter if you're born into a Christian family. It doesn't matter if you were taught the catechism. If you reject it yourself, there is no hope for you save that you turn from your sin, repent, and come to Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And I would plead with you not to leave this building today until you are right with God and you've cried out to him in faith and asked him to save you. But for those of us who do know the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be thankful that we serve the sort of God who makes gracious covenant with us. There's a lot of things in life that you can't predict. We're certain of at least two things, death and taxes. Everything else has a little bit of an X factor attached to it. When I came here as a pastor in 2019, there were so many things that I was looking forward to in 2020. Almost none of them happened. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what one month from now will bring. We don't know what one year from now will bring. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know this. God has said, I will. I will save you to the uttermost. I will provide for you. I will defend you. 
I will bring you safely home to eternity, and I will return you to this earth in a body that is yours, but restored in a soul that is pure and perfect. And no matter what comes to us day by day, you can rest on God's covenant. You can rest that while you don't know what your children or your grandchildren will do, you serve the God who says, I've promised to be a God to you and to your house and to your children after you. And in that, we can rest. Let us pray. We bless you in your majestic name, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that you would teach us to walk by faith, to be grateful for the signs and the seals of the covenant that remind us of your rich and powerful promises, and cause us all to walk by faith in your covenant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.